After what Pritzker described as high treason in promoting violence, the governor calls for Trump to be immediately removed as president. And Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin joins the podcast to recap the local housing market sector in 2020 and to talk about what data he'll have an eye on as we move into 2021. Uh, somebody stepped on the gas pedal. Everything accelerated. Homes have been selling so much faster in most parts of the Chicago area than they were in prior years. Prices have been rising super fast. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist. It's Thursday, January 7th. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a Paycheck Protection Program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours, too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. And we're joined now by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. Welcome, Dennis. Hi, Amy. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Okay. So when we think about the entire year of residential real estate, I mean, it's kind of a blur. Everything this year is kind of a blur because a lot happened, of course. But, and you know, you and I checked in every single week. But when I think back about certain houses, it seems like, you know, two years ago, in fact, we're like two months ago. So there was a lot. But what are the themes that emerge for you when you think about 2020 and the residential real estate market? You know, when I look back at uh, the beginning of 2020 or late 2019, of course, nobody was expecting the pandemic, but we were looking at a market that was going to be pretty quiet. Um, in fact, I so I was looking at an article I wrote in December 2019, which was a forecast for 2020. I spoke to several experts. And one of them said, I put it high in the story, 2020 promises to be more of the same steady, boring housing market in Chicago. Because for years, we had been, we hadn't been suffering. We had, of course, been growing at a very weak pace compared to other cities. But the market was happening. It just wasn't very exciting. It was uh, modest price increases, modest sales increases, that sort of thing. And we went into early 2020. Things started to improve a little bit, and you and I talked a few times in early 2020 about how things were starting to pick up, and maybe we were starting to catch up to the rest of the country. And then the pandemic that nobody expected happened, and everything changed. It became a very dramatic year in real estate, as well as, of course, in public health, in politics, and everything else. But if you just look at the real estate market, uh, it, it became something that we had absolutely not predicted. And if you had to kind of summarize the changes that you saw happen as a result of the pandemic, how would you, what would you focus on? Uh, somebody stepped on the gas pedal. Everything accelerated. Homes have been selling so much faster in most parts of the Chicago area than they were in prior years. Prices have been rising super fast. We've had double-digit price growth for uh, the past several months. And we had been we had seen prices rising in some in some months by one percent or less, uh, and the number of homes sold has picked up dramatically, especially in play, in some places that had been uh, struggling to get play, get homes sold. The Barringtons, Lake Forest, places like that, where 
I had written stories for RIDS. I had written stories saying, you know, you, you can't get a house to sell. Now they're flying off the market. So really, I would think it's uh, once the, the early weeks of the pandemic passed on and people started to realize uh, you could buy and sell houses, of course, you could have early in the time because real estate was considered an essential business and real estate agents were still out doing it. But once we got over our sort of our initial shock, the market just kicked into overdrive. And it has, I can't talk to a real estate agent uh, who doesn't say to me that this year has been so busy. They need a, they need a break. And in past years, they were kind of vacationing at their desk. Hmm. That's interesting. And I think it's been interesting to follow um, sort of the the tone of things because early on when the pandemic first arrived here, it seemed like there were a lot, you know, so many question marks and so many sectors of business of how do we keep doing this? And I thought it was very interesting how, uh, I, you know, you, you were describing to me how some realtors were being creative about how they were showing things and how they were doing that by video and how even closings were, were kind of shifting and how you could, you know, your notary could work over zoom now and things like that and, and how people adapted pretty quickly to, to make sure their sector was, was going to still keep going. Yeah. I think part of it is by necessity, right? I mean, we, we had most of the activity that you saw at that time was people who had to sell, Either I've taken a new job or something like that, I had to sell or had to buy. And real estate agents were sort of having to figure out how to make it work. Uh, closing banks and, and others were having to figure out how to make a closing work. And I think just like uh, working at home or ordering most of our food from takeout, it seemed like it was going to be a, a short-lived temporary sort of thing. Uh, but now, nine months into it, closings are still being done in virtual ways. Real estate agents tell me, uh, when I talk to the agent for the seller of a property, um, they say one of the things that's very strange is they used to meet the buyer of the property at the closing and say, you know, congratulations, uh, here's a great place to go for pizza in the neighborhood of your new home on the first night or whatever it is. And now they say it, it's uh, a common occurrence for the selling agent and the sellers never to even meet the buyers of the house because the closing is done with as few people in the room as possible. The sellers and seller's agent aren't required. Um, and so that just, it just sort of changes the nature of the kind of uh, the personal relationships, not that selling agents become the best friend of the buyer of the house or anything like that. But you used to at least put a face on who was buying that house that you represented or that you were the former owner of. And now you may move on and just have no idea. I think other spots of creativity have been interesting to watch. In particular, I'm thinking of the uh, campaign to try to get people that are working from home to move to Michigan and be a resident there. And, and there was like a financial incentive and all these other perks of moving there. Another thing that's just kind of born out of the pandemic that is just, you know, creative thinking out of necessity. Yeah, I think it's true. And I think um, this is why we've seen this boom in Southwest Michigan, why we've seen booms in Walworth County around Lake Geneva in, as I already said, Barrington, Lake Forest. In western Michigan, as you were describing, they were saying, come here, bring your remote work, and housing is cheap, and we've got a financial incentive for you. In those places I just mentioned, a lot of it is homes are less expensive. They're more wide open. One of the reasons Lake Forest is selling so well now is that you often get a whole lot of rooms. You know, it's an old mansion that had 
libraries and maids quarters and all that sort of thing. So we can both, we both have offices. The kids have a classroom within the house. We have a big yard. And I think some real estate agents have really sort of capitalized on that. I will say I was skeptical the first time I got an email. Oh, I'm going to say it was in April from a Barrington agent saying, uh, not directed to me, but just sort of a marketing email saying, Chicago buyers are going to be looking for your house. I thought, ah, no, they're not. Nobody, nobody moves from Chicago to Barrington anymore. They used to do that when Sears was headquartered out there and other corporations were headed northwest. Now, Chicago buyers buy in Chicago. That's where most of the job growth is. But it has been true. It turned out that real estate agent was way ahead of me because all the Barringtons have really boomed. And in many cases, the buyers appear to be, I don't have the data, uh, people from Chicago either buying full-time or, to move out there or buying a second home because things are so cheap with uh, interest rates and prices are so low in Barrington because of the slow years. So then I have two homes and I can deal with the current situation as I do. And then when we know what our permanent situation is, I'll decide whether to keep the two or keep one, only one or the other. And so, yeah, I think there were agents who were really seeing business might be coming my way and I should sort of stand up and wave my hand for it. And we've talked about that topic several times this year of what's happening in the suburbs versus what's happening in the city with the downtown condo market. And early on, you were kind of cautioning, well, let's not jump up and say, hey, everybody's moving to the burbs. That's it's too early to say that. But here now we're in December. What has the data really shown you? Well, we don't yet have data that says people are leaving the city for the suburbs. We do have data that says sales growth is a lot stronger in the suburbs than in the city. Uh, that's in part because of the, the downtown condo market, which we can talk about in a second. And what we don't know yet, and, and it will be a while until we get this kind of data, is how much of that is the second home buying or, or uh, part-time home buying I've been describing, and how much of it is people actually getting up and leaving the city. One of the things that, that several national analysts have said is that that flight from the city may be much more clear in San Francisco, in New York, where it's so expensive to live. And I've been struggling to pay for this. And I've really been annoyed by how expensive it is to live here. Now, suddenly, I don't have to live here in San Francisco or in New York where my job is um, or L.A. And. So I go to the less expensive market. I'm in San Francisco. I figure I can work remotely from Sacramento. I'm in New York. I figure I can work remotely from Philadelphia. And so what several people have said is you're probably going to, when the dust settles, you're probably going to see that there were actual large numbers of people who left cities like that. But Chicago's affordable. Um, and so not as many people, or the Chicago area, is affordable. So not as many people were thinking, I can't afford to live here. Okay, that's the last straw. I'm out. Uh, and but we do see a, a lot more sales growth in the suburbs. Now, here's one of the reasons for that: downtown condo market, the, all the way downtown, Streeterville, River North, West Loop. They're the places that have suffered this year because they took a double punch. One is in a pandemic when you're not supposed to be touching surfaces, when you're not supposed to be interacting with strangers. That sort of thing. A condo, especially a condo you have to reach by walking through a common lobby and using an elevator that other people have used is not as appealing. So that is one reason that people aren't buying and, and that's slowed the market down. The other is 
we had the two spasms of violence, the two spasms of violence related to social unrest that really created a, a concern among people who might buy down there that there's going to be more. Now, we haven't seen any more episodes of that since the first two, and let's cross our fingers that there is no more of that, but it will probably take a while before, uh, let's say, an empty nester from Hinsdale isn't saying, yeah, I was going to move downtown like all my friends, but I'm not going to because there's been so much violence. That's the sort of thing that could really change your mind quickly, and so people would, I'm downsizing in Hinsdale, I would buy uh, a smaller house in Hinsdale or something like that. And one of the things that somebody told me recently for a different story I was doing is all you've seen recently of downtown Chicago is the news of looting. You haven't seen fireworks. You haven't seen parades. You haven't seen, oh, there's this great concert at, in, in Millennium Park. You haven't seen a music festival. And so the images you have in your head of downtown, if you're this downsizer in Hinsdale or anywhere else, is the violence. You're not being reminded, wow, it is so great to live in downtown Chicago. And so when we get back to restaurants that are happening and music festivals and theater, then maybe those images of looting get pushed out of my head. And I'm reminded, yeah, my friends all moved downtown for really good reasons. It's a great place to be. And so then maybe we start to see the wheels start to turn in the market for downtown condos. Do you have any sense from realtors that you're talking with about what their expectations are for 2021 in terms of downtown markets and also suburban markets? Uh, well, one of the things almost everybody says is that I talked a little bit ago about how we've had this double-digit price growth. Prices will continue to go up, but not at that rate. Um, a lot of the buying was the, the, the double-digit price growth was during a time when uh, inventory was very tight. There are very few far fewer houses on the market than there could be given the volume of uh, buyer activity that's out there. So as time goes by and those of us who didn't sell because I don't know if I'm still going to, if I'm going to have a job, I don't know if I'm going to get laid off in this pandemic, or I don't know if I want to list my house because I don't want strangers coming in and possibly bringing the virus or any of a number of other reasons I wouldn't sell inventory stayed really low, but uh, it looks as if, the inventory should start to loosen up because if I've made it this far employed, I may feel pretty confident that I, I'll be employed going forward. Uh, we now understand a lot more about how the virus is spread, and so I can be more careful and, and not quite as concerned. And, um, and I've also seen my neighbors sell their houses at great prices, and those higher prices may have brought me up if I was underwater on my mortgage. Those higher prices may have brought me up to a point where I can afford so all the, to sell. So all those things happening at once or happening uh, concurrently might have more people put their houses on the market, have more people decide to do the move up. So more inventory comes on the market, which means that people aren't having to bid up and prices don't go up quite as much. So what most people are saying is, We've had this like 14% price increases in the last few months, and we've looked more toward about 3 to 5% in 2022. The problem is 3 to 5% on top of 14%, as several people have said, may get us uh, over, we may be moving into where we start to have affordability problems that we haven't had while the San Francisco's and Seattle's and Denver's and New York's have. 
Okay, I want to shift to specific houses because every single week you and I talk about very specific houses that are in the news that are selling or moving around or doing, you know, having a renovation, something like that. When we think about 2020, what specific houses stand out to you? You know, I think it would be a type of house. And I think it's interestingly, it's sort of a continuation of 2019. The mid-century modern houses, they sell so fast. And there's a reason they would sell so fast now. I mean, first of all, they're ba- the, the look is back in style. But as we've talked about, many of them, we've said, they sort of blend the indoors and out. They make living really casual and comfortable. All these kinds of things that work for this COVID lifestyle we have. I can work out on the patio. I can, if I'm working inside, I can be looking out at nature through these nice big picture windows. They're very comforting sorts of houses. So they would make a lot of sense in 2020, but they also were selling really well in 2019. You know, it, it looks new now. In a lot of cases, they look like new houses now. Lots of glass, lots of wood, relatively relaxed lifestyle, like living, dining, and kitchen sort of flow together rather than being formal rooms like in a colonial or, or another traditional house style. And we, you and I have talked about so many in the course of this year that have gone on and off the market in seven days, in 10 days. It's not a real surprise. First of all, a lot of houses are selling fast. These are selling faster. And that's partly because of what I just said about how they look and how they feel, but also because there are mid-century modern buyers or there are buyers of homes who are out there saying, no, show me the mid-century modern. I just wrote a couple of weeks ago about one in Bensonville. And you know, you may not have been shopping in Bentonville. You may have been shopping in, in other suburbs nearby, Elmhurst, or farther away, all the way in Glenview or something like that. But you see this perfect mid-century modern look, and you go to Bentonville and you pick it up. Um, and that's happened. We've seen that happen in several cases. Uh, in the course of this year, we've had distinguished pieces of architecture sold by their own architects who's lived in them for 50 years. We've had houses that uh, we have been owned only for a couple of years, but turnover quickly. Uh, the mid-century modern category, I think this year was really popping. Yeah, there were some that had some really interesting, you know, architectural pedigrees attached to them. There's a thing that I do when when I talk to you about a building and you talk about an architect, you'll always go, you know, this was the house he made, but he also built this building and this building and this building. And then that just kind of sticks in my brain forever. So every time I walk by those buildings, I'm like, oh, I know where that guy lived. I know what his house looked like. I know I know what that's all about. And so those kind of... I'm so glad to hear that. Thank you. That's good to know. Anyway, go ahead. You, you've helped my, you know, the way I understand buildings a lot. And I, I think about buildings so much differently every time we talk. But but there's the one the one uh, mid-century modern. I mean, there's so many that were so interesting and, and looked so beautiful. And I'm, I'm thinking of one that had like a tree that grew up through kind of through the house in the entrance way. Yeah. But, but there was one in uh, in Palos Park that was kind of like it had a bowling alley and it had I mean, that was kind of it felt like the mid-century. Mo- if you picture what is a mid-century modern going to look like, this felt like kind of the uh, a crown jewel in a way. It does. It, it was an interesting one because a, a lot of the mid-century houses are, are actually somewhat austere. People think of them as people who don't like them think of them as sort of boxy and and um, unadorned, lots of wood and that sort of thing, but no you know big door frames and no peaked roof. But so a lot of them are somewhat austere. This one was not austere. This one is more that sort of space age wildness. Um, it, it's crescent shaped. It's got 
pieces that are turquoise blue. It has sort of cantilevered balconies off. It's on a slightly sloped site, and there are balconies that cantilever off. There's a, as you said, there's a bowling alley. Uh, this was a house that was built in the 1950s um, by a man named, the architect was Richard Claridge, and he just went to the wall with it. He, I mean, he really, he put in everything. It's got um, very slender columns that, that really speak. They, they look like, like a motel you'd see in Las Vegas or Florida from the 50s. The house was in trouble. The house had been badly damaged because it had been in one family for a long time and sort of sat for a while. So it was, they were asking only $300,000 for a house that is over 10,000 square feet. Uh, and as I understand, when it sold pretty quickly, it sold to somebody who's rehabbing it, who's really going to do a lot of work. And I hope to see it when it's rehabbed, because I think, I mean, it's going to look like a movie set. It looks like like you couldn't walk in there without like wearing a, a leather jacket and and duck tail in your hair. <laughs> right. Uh, it's right out of the 50s. It's, and and um, and that, yeah, I think that was sort of the best of all of these. There was another in Palos with a big a frame for the door and but we've had them in uh, lake forest and i said bensonville and glenview and riverwoods riverwoods has really popped onto the screen this year because a lot of houses were built in the 50s and 60s there and when they come on the market they go fast and there's also been so many houses we've talked about this year that just are really unusual like outside of that style that are just kind of a house unto themselves. There's two in particular I'm thinking of. One of them was, I think you called it like the castle in the sky or something. It was a, pen, yeah. a penthouse on Lakeshore Drive that nobody kind of knew was there. Yeah. And I, I was a little surprised that I didn't know it was there because I know the building well. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a famous old co-op building right on Lakeshore Drive. And uh, I had written about many uh, units that had gone on the market there over the years because people like uh, members of the Wrigley family and the Marshall Field family had lived there over the years. It's, it's like the most elite of the 1920s uh, co-op buildings in the city. And what I did not know is that on the top floor or really on the top floors, there's this, uh, well, yeah, I called it a castle in the sky. If the building has a rectangular footprint, this is a U-shaped footprint. The fourth side being a big lawn and fountain, 20 plus stories up in, <laughs> up in the air. I'm sorry, 15 plus stories up in the air. So you've got this U-shaped house and lawn with tall cypress trees like you'd see on, on in the yard of a house on uh, the lake on the lake in Winnetka. But you're several stories off the ground on Lakeshore Drive in the city. And the rooms are well they look like they're out of a castle they're they're ornate they've got arched ceilings uh and the man who's selling it hasn't sold it yet in the mid 90s he became famous he's owned it much longer than that uh and he has i guess just lived quietly up there nobody really knew it was there until he put it on the market this spring uh this spring quietly and then more publicly in the fall so this is the guy I think you remember when Princess Diana came to Chicago uh, in the mid '90s for events that were attached to Northwestern's cancer program. She was at an event, and this man just walked up and asked her to dance. Or that, that's that's an exaggeration. 
he came to the edge of her, essentially sort of her security area and asked for her to dance. Turns out he had sent her flowers prior to her arrival. And it's not clear whether she thought she should dance with him or thought, oh, I don't know how to say no, <laughs> but she danced with him. And then he ends up in People magazine and he ends up in the British press because uh, you shouldn't be asking the uh, the Princess of Wales to dance. <laughs> so she's like this Chicagoan who suddenly is being reported all over the world for uh, breaching royal protocol. And he basically said, I'm an American. We don't have royal protocol here. Right. And also he lives in a house that looks like, you know, you're overlooking the Amalfi Coast. So, you know, yeah. he was into well, bold and moves. It's a castle. Yeah, <laughs> right. he might have said to her, look, you can move from the castle you're in to mine. <laughs> I got a you castle know? too. <laughs> I got a castle too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what other, uh, what other houses kind of stand out as just unusual uh, kind of special places when you think back of what went on the market or sold this year? You know, there is, there's a, um, we've had several stories about the Frank Lloyd Wright houses selling for uh, land value or less. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's, that's tough because Frank Lloyd Wright houses were, are, are these jewels of our architectural patrimony in Chicago. And, and it's been tough to see them so devalued that they sell for, in many cases, less than the land value. But there's one, it hasn't yet sold, it's for sale, uh, that impressed me because it was, there was, a, it, a, I think, five years ago, I wrote about it when the owner, who has lived there since the 1950s, uh, her husband died a while ago. She was in her 80s. Sorry, she was in her 70s at that time. And she was still cleaning the leaves off the roof herself, like climbing up in her 70s, going up on the ladder with a broom brushing leaves off, that sort of thing. And when I first wrote the story, something like five years ago, she was planning to put it on the market. She and her son were planning to put it on the market because it was sort of time uh, for her to move on. And then she didn't put it on the market because she loved the house so much she stayed, which I think is what you do with this, with these really unusual houses. She stayed, and then it was only after her passing that this year her son put it on the market. Um, so that's not so much a real estate story as it is sort of a poignant one. But here was this woman who, you know, well beyond the time when other people are not climbing up on the roof. She was still maintaining this house herself and then stayed in it uh, until she no longer could. Yeah. I think there's so many of those that we, we talk about all the time that they're these really special houses that maybe had a really, you know, influential architect attached to them or something. And people just kind of stay in them and take care of them and, and want them to be treated well. I mean, I'm thinking of one that we talked about kind of recently that was made to be part of a church raffle and the guy was seeking landmark status because it was just kind of a special house. Yeah. Well, actually also a, a modern house, but a, and another one of those really crazy ones um, done by Edo Belly in the 1950s. Edo Belly was a, a an architect of, dozens, literally dozens of Catholic churches, other religious buildings, convents, etc., around Chicago and around the country, and including, I believe, in Rome. I, I know that they designed, he designed a building in Rome. I just don't know whether it's still standing. And he did some, some really bold modern churches and was doing a bold modern church that was funded by this raffle. So that he designs the house and the priest from the congregation says, essentially, you got to make this as crazy as you can because I want it to attract international attention so that I sell a lot of tickets to the raffle. This is back in the 1950s. 
And um, so he designs this house that I think I said, but nobody else seems to think so. It looks like a giant insect because it's got these four big, it's held up by buttresses rather than um, supported by a foundation beneath. So uh, for anybody who doesn't know what a buttress is, you can think of those things at the top of the famous Tribune Tower, the sort of open L's that hold up the side walls that you can see through a buttress to the top of the tower. Well, this house has these giant steel buttresses that hold the whole house up. And so it kind of looks like a big insect, um, I think. But really an interesting, fascinating building. And the current owner, who is not the original builder of the house, wanted to get it landmarked because he's been in it since the late 90s. And he wants to make sure that the house remains after he's gone. So this fall, he put it up for landmarking, which it appears that it's going to get. So when you think ahead to just maybe even the first couple of months of 2021, what things will you be most interested to watch as we start the new year? Oh, that's an interesting one. So one thing is, I was talking about how in the fall we've seen double-digit price growth. So I'm wondering just how long that's going to last. Will we, will it, we, I reported when it had been eight weeks, nine weeks, 10 weeks, when prices were up 14% or more from the year before. And, and, you know, that's not sustainable. That's the sort of thing that was going on in Seattle and Seattle's housing market ended up to be sort of a nightmare. It's not that I want that to happen. I just, I wonder how long it will happen before we get back into sort of a, a more normal groove when prices are up five, six, three percent from a year before. And one of the problems is going to be that uh, very soon we get into those, we, when we're comparing year to year, let's say we're looking at July of 2021, prices were up so much in 2020 that uh, it may start to look bad in 21. However, that would be a sign that things are actually remaining pretty affordable. I've said many times, you do all the math so that the rest of us don't have to, and we all appreciate you for that. Well, I hope what I just <laughs> I'm thinking back on what I just said and hoping that it makes sense. I, I guess what I'm talking about is prices have gone up so much this year. I'm going to be interested to see how long they continue going up that much. We don't need them to stay at that pace, in part because we lose a lot of affordability. But just in a bookkeeping sense, I will end up with a problem. And the few others who, who look at it this way will end up with a problem because prices were up so much in 20. Uh, we're going to have to find a way to say, you know, this is not bad news when prices aren't up as much in 21. Yeah, that's right. Well, if anyone can find a way to do that, it is you, Dennis Radkin. <laughs> I'll try. I will try. Well, thank you as ever for chatting and Happy New Year to you, Dennis. Thanks, Amy. Same to you. Coming up, Illinois residents 65 and older will get the next phase of COVID vaccines. That's down from those 75 years and older, a move the governor said addresses concerns about how COVID has disproportionately impacted Black and Latino communities. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Chicago Comes Back provides resilient leadership insights to help your business move forward from the pandemic. Delivered on Thursdays, this free e-newsletter features up-to-date information and guidance for Chicago's businesses. Sign up at chicagobusiness.com slash Chicago Comes Back.
accusing him of, quote, high treason in promoting violence that resulted in insurrection Wednesday at the Capitol. Governor J.B. Pritzker urged the immediate removal from office of President Trump. Pritzker said in a tweet that later was released by his office as a press statement, quote, two weeks is too long for Donald Trump to remain in office where he can continue to incite more untold violence. Pritzker said Trump's decision to address a rally of supporters and urge them to march on the Capitol, which thousands did, storming past police and into the House and Senate chambers, raises real questions about, quote, what efforts the president made to protect our Congress or what obstructions he committed that have prevented the ending of the siege. The governor's statement continued, quote, there is no doubt in my mind that this effort to encourage a coup represents high treason to this democracy, our Constitution and all Americans. Continuing, he poses a danger to our nation. He must be impeached and removed from office immediately. Calls for the president to be removed from office in the wake of events Wednesday at the U.S. Capitol sharply amplified Thursday morning, with the only Republican congressman from the Chicago area leading the charge. Yesterday was a sad day, as we all know. It was the day where fire stoked by the president and other leaders finally leapt out of the pit and it lit the trees. Thankfully, the strength of our Constitution and democracy held, and we emerged today a little better, but resolved. U.S. Representative Adam Kinzinger, a Republican from Chanahan, said in a video statement posted on Twitter, quote, it's time to invoke the 25th Amendment and end this nightmare. Sadly, yesterday, it became evident that not only has the president abdicated his duty to protect the American people and the people's house, he invoked and inflamed passions that only gave fuel to the insurrection that we saw here. When pressed to move and denounce the violence, he barely did so while, of course, victimizing himself and seeming to give a wink and a nod to those doing it. All indications are that the president has become unmoored, not just from his duty, nor even his own, but from reality itself. It is for this reason that I call for the vice president and members of the cabinet to ensure the next few weeks are safe for the American people and that we have a sane captain of the ship. The invasion of the Capitol on Wednesday happened as both houses were acting on formalizing Joe Biden's election as president. Another strongly worded statement was issued by Illinois House Speaker Mike Madigan, the chairman of the state Democratic Party, saying, quote, What we witnessed today was nothing short of a coup at the hands of Donald Trump and his Republican enablers, he said. Continuing, what should have been a ceremonial event to mark the peaceful transition of power became an appalling and tragic day for our country. Similarly, U.S. business leaders also denounced Trump for inciting supporters, with the head of the National Association of Manufacturing saying Vice President Mike Pence should, quote, seriously consider consider working with the cabinet to remove the president from office. President Donald Trump, minutes after Congress certified President-elect Joe Biden's Electoral College victory in the wee hours of Wednesday night into Thursday morning, pledged, quote, an orderly transition in a statement posted on Twitter by his aide, Dan Scavino. Scavino posted the statement for the president because Trump's own accounts were suspended by Twitter, Facebook and Snapchat for repeatedly putting out false statements about the election. A venture of Wilmette-based Terrico Real Estate and Chicago-based Mark Realty is looking for nearly $20 million for a two-story property they recently completed right across the street from Wrigley Field. That according to a marketing flyer for the property. The more than 10,000-square-foot building is leased to drugstore chain CVS, which signed a 15-year deal to join the flurry of brands setting up shop in Wrigleyville. The listing comes amid a crisis that has badly impacted commercial property sales, but had little impact on those leased to 
two high-credit single users on long-term deals. Purchasing such properties is kind of like buying a bond tied to the tenant, providing reliable cash flow without the risk of facing a big vacancy. Terrico and Mark Realty paid $5.8 million in 2017 for a small brick building on the site that previously held longtime tenants Luis Auto Repair and Box Office Tickets. They tore down the building in 2019, started work on the new CVS, and refinanced the property in March of 2020 with a $9.6 million loan from First Midwest Bank. That according to Cook County Property Records. The building also includes a 700-square-foot billboard leased for 11 years to advertising company Clear Channel Outdoors, under which the building's owners get 30% of the billboard's advertising revenue, according to MidAmerica Real Estate, the firm that is marketing the property for sale. Amid a booming real estate market, the inventory of homes for sale in the Chicago area has dropped to the lowest point on record. At the end of December, enough homes were on the market to fuel 1.8 months of sales at the current pace, according to figures that were compiled for cranes by Midwest real estate data. And that's the lowest since at least January 2008, which is the earliest data that MRED has. And for context, usually an inventory of about four to six months is considered a healthy and balanced market. But with the holidays and cold weather, the end of the year is typically a pretty low inventory time. But let me throw some numbers at you. The 1.8-month figure for December compares to inventory of at least three months in each of the four prior Decembers and inventory over four months in each of the three Decembers before that. Ten years ago, the Chicago real estate market closed out 2009 with 11.6 months of available inventory. The current inventory figure is area-wide, but it's also counter to such slow-moving patches in the area like the Loop. In December, Cranes reported that the condo market in the Loop had 24 months' worth of unsold condos, having been nearly emptied out by COVID restrictions and civil unrest over the summer. And the lack of homes for sale overall isn't just in the Chicago area, it's pretty much nationwide. The available inventory of homes is down from a year ago in 48 out of 50 U.S. metro areas, according to a report by Realtor.com. In fact, the only two metro areas with more properties listed now than a year ago are San Francisco and San Jose, California. Governor Pritzker announced that Illinois is expanding vaccine priority in the next phase of COVID-19 vaccine distribution, saying that phase 1B will include not only frontline essential workers and those age 75 and older, as it does now, but also people 65 and older. The governor said he lowered the age because black and Latino seniors have been disproportionately impacted by COVID. Illinois Department of Public Health Director Dr. Ngoze Zike said, quote, we are hopeful that lowering the eligibility age to 65 years, we can help reduce this disparity. Phase 1B is slated to start later this month or in February, kicking in after medical workers and nursing home workers are all vaccinated. Similar moves have been taken by governors in Texas, Florida, as well as in other states. And that's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to our guest today, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your audio on demand. And find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.